Welcome back to Defenders Dialogue with Carr and Adam. This is episode number eight, The Wrecking Crew and Luke Cage 2, in which we're going to look at Giant Size Defenders number two and Defenders regular issues 17, 18, 19. And I'm Adam Phillips, president of Untold Stories Marketing. And with me is... Carl D'Angelo, owner and proprietor of Earth 2 Comic Shops in Sherman Oaks and Northridge, California. Hooray. These are some fun issues. We're going to get into them in a minute, but I have two very quick corrections. They're both things I screwed up. And they're both relating to Frank McLaughlin. And I realized, like, I, I had noticed these corrections needed to be made a while back, but I kept forgetting to actually say them. Did we... Do, did we do something to, to insult Mr. McLaughlin? I don't believe anyone would hear this and think, what an insult. Okay. I said he drew some, like, how to do judo on your own. Those features appeared in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, the black and white magazine, and I said that they appeared in Savage Fists of Kung Fu, which was a tabloid reprint of some of those stories. Oh, that was a treasury edition. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is, I don't know if anyone will take this as like I offended anyone, but we were talking about what kind of inking work Frank McLaughlin had done at DC. And I said, I thought I remembered him inking Kurt Swan and I didn't really like it. And then I realized <clears throat> I was actually thinking of Frank Chiaramonte, a different person. You, that makes sense. Yeah. And sorry, Frank Chiaramonte fans, but I was not into the way he finished Kurt Swan's artwork. Yeah, I did not remember that the as a pairing, Kurt and Swan and Frank McLaughlin. So I'm glad yeah. we got that cleared up. And there okay. were muddy there were some muddy inkers that they teamed Kurt Swan up with like Frank Schiermonte was one of them. Tex yeah. Plays Dell was one I never really liked. And um yeah. uh and Dave Hunt was okay, was really very heavy on the inks. Mm-hmm. Right. So now we're going to jump into Giant Size Defenders number two. But I had a couple of quick notes before we get onto that. One is in the omnibus here that we're both reading, there is, of course, a Roy Thomas text piece right here before Giant Size Defenders number two. And it was from a masterworks, I'm sure. But the yes. reason I bring it up is that Roy talks in it about Stan Lee having been the one to come up with the idea of adding quarterly giant size issues of Mar Marvel's most popular monthlies, which still leads me to ask why the defenders then, since they were bi-monthly when the, you know, they started doing the giant sizes. Right. Cause there was never a giant size Hulk. I guess not series. Was there a giant size Hulk? I'm not sure. No, there might've been like, there might've been a giant size Hulk. There was, that was like a reprint book. It's somewhere along yeah. the way. Uh, when they found right. them, they just became reprint ones. But in terms of all new, there there wasn't. So I wonder if maybe Defenders was serving as that. Because also the idea, uh, I didn't realize this idea that the Giants would always have guest stars. But if you look at those early Giants, that is kind of the thing. Part sure. of the hunt. Because like, <laughs> there's a, a Fantastic Four one that has the Hulk and the Hulk, and uh, or the giant size superstars that has Hulk versus Thing. And there's all the Spider-Man ones were team-ups with crazy people like Dracula and Morbius and Punisher. Doc Savage. And Doc Savage. Yeah. I mean, yes. so they, they were, they, they, that was seeming to be the idea of, of some sort of outreach maybe. Um, mm. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. And I mean, we talked about some of this already, but I will also mention that the giant size, there seem to be two types of giant size books. 
One was a single issue that's a reprint, and Captain America, Doctor Strange, Captain Marvel, and a few others got those. And then there were the ones like this series, Giant Says Defenders, Fantastic Four, Shang-Chi, uh, Dracula, and a bunch of others that were all new material. Well, Avengers, and I'd say, was the most successful. Avengers. They had like four issues of new material that really did intersect with the ongoing storyline. I mean... Yeah, for sure. The other thing I wanted to mention that is actually a note on Giant Size Defenders number one, I went back and looked at this, and you know how we were kind of trying to figure out where that Submariner reprint comes from? Yeah. The Hulk reprint and the Doctor Strange Strange Tales reprint both say exactly what issue they were from, and the Submariner one doesn't. It doesn't say anything about where it came from, right. which I, I, I didn't notice before, but I noticed when I went back and looked at it a little earlier, and it's odd. I mean, it's like, what? how difficult could it be to put in, you know, the, where exactly this came from? But I, they didn't do it. So, all right. Anyway, moving on. Giant Size Defenders number two. It went on sale July 9th, 1974, with the cover date of October. Anyway, the story is by Len Wein. Art, art by Gil Kane and Klaus Janssen. Really one of my favorite teams of the 70s, art teams of the 70s. I think that covers by Kane and Janssen, too. Although that Hulk face is probably uh, re-inked by John Romita on the cover. Yeah, yeah, it looks like Jansen inks except on like the, the Hulk base. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And the story's called H, as in Hulk, Hell, and Holocaust. The Hulk is still in New York City following the United Nations adventure that we just had, but nobody remembers it because Doctor Strange and I guess Professor X work together to Wipe everyone's memories of anything having happened. <laughs> they seem to do that a lot. So the police are attacking the Hulk or trying to contain him, and he's not having any of it. He's got a police car, which for some reason is green and white, and he's about to throw it at the cops. They're shooting at him with heavy machine guns and whatnot. And then there's a tank coming up from the uh, National Guard. <laughs> One cop says, who sent for them? We don't need their help. And the other guy says, yeah, you know what? I'll take their help. Thanks very much. The National Guard backs up a truck, and the back of the truck opens, and out comes a big robot, America's first fully automated soldier. Yeah, this really looks like a, an Iron Man Stark knockoff or something. <laughs> I know. It does. It doesn't look at all like a robot dog, which is like the thing from a few months ago that they tried to trot out. So Hulk sort of questions what this thing is, and instead of answering his questions about what do you want, robot, the robot starts shooting force rays at the Hulk from his palms and, you know, torso. It's very silly looking. The rays don't have any effect on the Hulk pretty much at all. Hulk just walks up to it and smashes it into a million pieces. And before anyone else can do something, Hulk says, you know, I've had about enough out of, of this situation, and he leaps away toward a distant part of the city where he runs into a small child in an alleyway. And her name is Laurie, Mr. Hulk, she says. Before we before we pick up the, 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 the scene, Len likes to have Hulk say Hulk is the strongest one there is a lot. And it made me curious, right. and I'm probably going to look, look it up at a, at a, at a later date, because he also says it in the previous issue of Defenders. Ah. And I'm curious, like, when that phrase started. I certainly oh, associate it with this period of time, but you know when that first time Hulk says 
Hulk is the strongest one there is. But I also love the bit about the robot that it costs two and a half million dollars of taxpayer money. And then the Hulk right. kind of just, you know, destroyed it in a in, in a minute. So it's really not obviously the, 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 the best use. Considering a bionic man at this point in time was roughly what six million dollars, <laughs> you know, give or take, give or take, uh, two and a half million for for a robot. Maybe it's not bad, but it's uh, yeah, but it was it didn't it didn't get very far. It was a bargain. It was a bargain. <laughs> All we got for six million dollars was an arm, a leg, and an eye. But yes, now we're leaving the superhero part of our story into the mysterious supernatural part of our story. Yes, although I do want to say one more thing about that robot fight because you pointed out the two and a half, two and one half million dollars spent on it. In the same panel, there's another caption that says, let's hear it for creative overkill, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. Yes. Um, so Hulk is in some different part of the city now, and he's in a uh, shadowy alleyway, and there's a little girl there who says her name is Lori, and he's gonna, she's going to help the Hulk. And Joe Kane draws a very convincing, like not everybody can draw small children and have them look good. And this is like a well-drawn little six-year-old looking kid, you know, who is convincing. Good for you, Gil Kane. <laughs> she takes his hand and starts leading him into this building and down all these stairs. And this is supposed to be where he will be able to be safe. And Hulk finally says, what is this weird place you're leading me to anyway? And he loses sight of her for a minute and turns and sees that she is transforming into a demon. What? Hulk says, what do you call your home? And the demon says, I call it hell. Hell. Oh, my God. That's insane. This is like, this is like, this looks like a Neil Adams house of mystery story. Yeah, very much so. The demon reveals its name. Lorox the Lecherous. I wasn't sure if he, if he was French and it was Laroe. Oh, could be. <laughs> the Lorox is good. It was more the lecherous part I was concerned about. Yeah. Which I kind of wonder, like, did the people at the Comics Code just not know what that word meant, or did they not care and figured the kids the kids wouldn't know? Anyway, Lorox the Lecherous summons uh, some big sort of demonic Bruce Banners. There's like four of them, and they're much bigger than the Hulk, and they start calling the Hulk weak and stupid, and they start beating up the Hulk. And the Hulk is going, you know, having kind of a freak out about this and start, you know, they're all laughing at him, and he says, nobody laughs at Hulk. Hulk is strong, the strongest one there is. Hey, there it is again. Yeah, he says it a lot. He says it on the previous page, too. But I love this image. I mean, this is a this is a great sequence. If you're trying to screw with the Hulk's head, it's like having yeah. funny banners you know and again i don't think that was that idea of, of of showing them as two entities in the same scene wasn't something that was done a lot at this point i mean it became more of an issue with like the peter david years but right now you know i mean we and we really haven't seen banner much in defenders you know since the the roy thomas days when he kept borrowing dr strange's clothes <laughs> for sure and it's beautifully drawn man Gil Kane, you know so we flip the page and we see that this is all being revealed to Doctor Strange, Nighthawk, and Valkyrie in Stephen Strange's home. They're sort of watching what's happening in a uh, like a globe. A shadowy figure is telling them what's going on. My master wishes you to serve him. 
and you know we're going to keep tormenting the Hulk until you agree to submit to the master's demands is what the, he says, and that right. if we don't, you know, the Hulk, the Hulk's mind can't withstand this kind of thing very long, and if his mind goes, so does Bruce Banner, is one of the most brilliant men on earth. So you know the 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 figure sort of disappears, and Nighthawk says he's gone in a puff of smoke, <laughs> and for some reason. Doctor Strange says, blown away is the vernacular term, I believe. And Nighthawk sort of says, um, no, it's not really, but okay. It's it's an odd moment. It it really is. It's like, you're a square. Was he trying to say like you're a square old man? <laughs> he is, but it's like, I don't know. That doesn't serve the story very well to me at no. this very high, you know, moment of high tension. The three defenders think they can go out and like scour New York City because the guy had said it's somewhere nearby scour new york city and find where the hulk is but they have no luck even dr strange who you know actually is more attuned to this kind of mystical activity than the others of course but didn't they're getting nothing so they re rejoin and try to figure out what to do next and nightwing says something about when i think the hell that that monster is going through and dr strange goes I got an idea. This is guy that I've heard of, Damon Hellstrom. Maybe he could help us. He's supposed to be an expert on hellishness. Hellishness. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's yeah. it's a little unclear. Um, satanic stuff. It's in his name. It's Hellstrom. It's he name. must know about hell and Strom. Yeah, right. He's an expert on hell <laughs> and Strom Thurmond. <laughs> and unfortunately, Damon Hellstrom lives in St. Louis. So Doctor Strange sends out his astral form to find Damon Hellstrom. And he finds him seconds later in St. Louis. Dr. Strange, you know, asks for the help, for the help he needs. And he says, I don't think I should really help you. You're going to get a lot more than you think you want. If I help you, it's going to be dangerous. And Dr. Strange says, no, 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 we really need the help. So, Damon Hellstrom transforms himself into the son of Satan. Ta-da. Ta-da. I know. He puts up the three fingers and fire erupts around him, and suddenly he's in his costume with flames everywhere. And But that that's um, a great panel. That's an amazing panel. It is. And I love Dr. Strange says, the whispered tales I have heard are all true. I'm like, who's whispering these tales to you? Where does he hear these things? It's all in the newsletter. I guess so. It's as good an explanation as any. But I think, I mean, I think the idea, I mean, again, it's it's an old mystical thing, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, there's, you know, that part of when Doctor Strange, he never rests, right? So, you know, we saw his sanctum yeah. where he communes with the universe. So I think it's just that, you know, not spying, but sort of like the idea that, like, you're just kind of sending, you know, doing, you're researching, you know, right. you're just and going outward to touch base. And yes, you might hear whispers of, oh, you know, because I guess Son of Satan's been in a few, you know, a few issues. He had his run in Marvel Spotlight at this point, I would guess. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I never read any of that stuff, to be honest. Although we did call him Son of Stan. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, Doctor Strange teleports Son of Satan back to his place in New York and he's already picking up the signal on his trident 
So he um, flies out, Doctor, uh, Son of Satan, that is, flies out following the the vibrations or whatever to where the Hulk is. And the Defenders follow him. And they come to an empty lot. But Doctor Strange and Son of Satan together use their powers to reveal, oh no, there's a big creepy building. They go inside the building and they start looking for the Hulk. And they, they decide to split up so that they can find him faster, I guess. And we first see Doctor Strange is confronted by the spirits of patients who died because he was a bad doctor sometimes. And then we see Valkyrie following her path and she meets a bunch of women with blonde hair, but no faces like her. Look in this mirror. You have no face because she has no real identity of her own. Nighthawk is sort of putting on, put on trial and about to be hanged for his past crimes and it all happens pretty fast he's not really a hero he's only pretending to be a hero and the son of satan finds a bunch of demons tormenting his mother who i guess i think that was his thing that like his mother's a regular person and his father is a demon or something like that well his father is satan i think he i mean all the different devil levels of devils in and you know we'll get to that too with when we get to this villain yes there are a lot of kind of devils and kind of uh paradevils or whatever you want to call them semi-devils in in marvel mythology you know mephisto is sort of the big one but but literally the you know ghost rider where son of satan comes from dealt with the actual Satan, Johnny Blaze, allegedly got his powers from Satan, and then and and therefore had a relationship with the son of Satan. But there's probably also a lot of revisionist stuff because I think there were times when they wanted to back off from actual Christian terminology. That's true, so, and also you know they were sort of dancing around what the comics code would let them get away get away with. Right. Yeah, absolutely true. So our four heroes are kind of incapacitated now, and then we pull back to see that it is Asmodeus who's making all this happen. Yes, Asmodeus, who will crush the world beneath his immortal heel, he says. I hope he's got an immortal rest of him to go with that heel. (laughs) This has chapters, I kind of forgot, but we're on to chapter three, Soul Game. Soul Game. Chapter, Chapter two, which is when Doctor Strange first met Son of Satan, was called Satan's Spawn. So chapter three, Soul Game. And they're basically all, Dr. Strange just starts to have the realization, which most doctors have to have in their career at some point early on, that it's tragic and terrible, but people are going to die. You can't save everyone. You've watched Scrubs, right? (laughs) It's his favorite show. Yeah, it's a good one. So he kind of escapes from the torment that's been on him. And then he goes and helps Valkyrie and explains how, no, you're not nobody. You are a real person and you're learning more about yourself every day. And so she's freed. Then that is a great creepy image. Again, going back to that horror story motif. I mean, that idea of being surrounded by, you know, you losing your face and seeing these other faceless creatures. There's, there's something I think primal about that image that is scary. The idea of identify ourselves by our faces. And if we lost that face, it's traumatic and and i'm always you know i'm always creeped out by that image and things you know when 
characters without faces or without mouths show up. It is creepy, and it reminded me a little bit of that Star Trek episode with Charlie X. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, which freaked me out when I was a kid. I saw that, I think, on first run, and it, it scared the pants off me, you know? Doctor Strange and Valkyrie then find Nighthawk, and Valkyrie throws her sword, and it cuts through the noose that he was about to be hanged by, although I don't know if that would really have done anything. But he's freed, and the judge and jury and all those people sort of disappear. And then they find the Hulk still being beaten up by the Bruce Banners, and they're going to save Hulk. But Hulk says, I don't need help. I can do it myself. And he turns around to hit the banners, hit back at the banners, but they all change into rock. So Satan just sort of shows up now and says that he's he too was freed from the torment that was tormenting him. A big mist sort of swirls, and now they find themselves in in the room with Asmodeus, who Doctor Strange remembered had died of a heart attack in uh, issue 177 of his own series. This was the big arc. This was this was the end of the big arc where Doctor Strange put on his mask. Uh, yes. In, you know, after Strange Tales, and Asmodeus and his was sort of the the big villain uh, for several issues during that time. Right. Um, but obviously, kind of forgotten, I would say. I, I mean, I don't know if this is in nineteen seventy four. Four. You know, if this is yes. the big, like, oh my God, it's Asmodeus. But you know, it's always good to tie back to the the past. For sure. I don't think people would have remembered him particularly. And the panel where Dr. Strange says, you know, I thought you were dead, sort of explains very quickly what happened and why he's not dead seemingly anymore. And also then, as Modi says, do you think you can truly defy the powers granted to me by the mighty Satanish? And I always wondered about that Satanish thing. That does seem to be... An early because Satanish, I think, used to be mentioned in Doctor Strange, and it does seem it was a name created so we weren't saying Satan. You know, it's like he's not Satan; he's just Satanish. Hey, that's funny. You don't look Satanish. You know, you still <laughs> the Satanish holidays. Most of them. <laughs> I know. I I had the same thought. It's I remember. Marvel had this thing in the early 70s where they didn't say zombies, they said Zuvambis. Zuvambis, yes. That's another good one, yeah. It's a bad euphemism that really doesn't help. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help. Well, it was a good thing. I mean, to you know, we saw the gothic stuff in the early pages of Defenders, and it is, you know, we're crossing over with Son of Satan here, but this is the time of the Exorcist, you know, being the best-selling novel, and you know, oh, sure. and, and a huge movie, and this whole occult thing that really is was really fascinating people, uh, and and the comics, which were dealing in fantasy type of stuff, were were fighting hard to go. How come we can't capitalize on this? So it did change the comics code. They were able to bring in werewolves and vampires back into comics. So, you know, Marvel had, I mean, how many, you know, different werewolves in, you know, you had your science fiction werewolves like Manwolf and you had your regular werewolves like Werewolf by Night and you had your science fiction vampire Morbius and your regular vampire, you know, Dracula and all of that. Right. Not to mention the black, not to mention the black black and white magazines. Right. Well, they, they did those first, 
to get around the comics code because the magazine yeah. size was not subject to the comics code. Sure, but I'm just saying, like, that shows, you know, how big a cultural movement it was at the time. Oh, of course, that yeah. They, I mean, they, it could support a bunch of different magazines and comics. Right. Yeah, they right. didn't do really superhero uh, magazines because they, but but the but the the black and white, and obviously, you know, the it was proven by creepy and eerie for so many years. Yeah. As well, you know, really was a good place to do horror. Right. Okay, so Asmodeus traps all the defenders in sort of a field that he's created with a gesture from his hand, but it doesn't affect Son of Satan because. Asmodeus' powers come from Satan, and so does Son of Satan himself, so he's just not affected. And he blasts Asmodeus with his trident, knocks Asmodeus over, and the defenders are free of the force field, and then a clock from somewhere is tolling midnight, and Asmodeus says, oh no, I'm doomed, because the deal he made with Satanish only lasts 12 hours till midnight, and now my time is up, and a giant crack in the earth opens up, and a big, blue, furry hand that looks like a gorilla hand or something reaches out and grabs Asmodeus and pulls him down into the crack in the earth, and the crack closes up again, and the defenders find themselves ejected from the building and back on the sidewalk in New York, and that thread's over. <laughs> it, so it goes. Some of... Son of Satan says, well, I'm glad I was able to help. And they kind of say, see you, see you around, Defenders. Nice meeting you. And it kind of ends on a note of Son of Satan saying how I've still got to deal with everything with my father. Right. So he can go back to his series and have his adventures. And I think a lot of his backstory was about sort of saving his mother's soul or something like that or finding her. I do think, again, that ending with Asmodeus is one of those classic you know, twist ending story kind of things. You know, I made a deal that I thought I, there's no way I could lose this deal. I just had to bring satanish new souls and I was going to trade their lives for my life and I was going to be returned to life, except the one thing he didn't plan on because he didn't plan on Son of Satan being there. That was that was an X factor that there was someone who was immune to his his dark forces because Son of Satan's dark forces were were, were stronger. But it's one of those things where, like, at the end of the story, I wanted to go back and go, what was his plan? And his plan was using the Hulk to lure Strange and the other defenders and to make that deal. He specifically says something like he had to trade the five souls, but that doesn't really make sense. That probably was only written that way once there were five characters on the page, but he really couldn't count on on, on the number. You know, it really would have been more like, I mean, I guess it would have just, let's see how many friends Doctor Strange can round up for me. But, you know, I think just the idea that he was going to make an exchange of other souls for his soul to return to life. Right. And it's funny because, like, at the end here, when Asmodeus is revealed finally, he could have easily said, I did this all to get revenge on you, Stephen Strange. But they never say it. Right. He could have said, oh, I made a deal that I'm going to give up. I'm going to, I'm going to give send you to hell and I'll be free of hell if I send you to hell. Oh, and it's just a bonus if I get to send Hulk and your yes. other friends, you know. For sure. You know, that the idea that it was a five, you know, for one just kind of threw me. But again, knowing how also, you know, if you're looking at plot, art, script, 
something that may have made sense yeah. going into it, and then you just kind of say something because you're looking at the art because you're saying, oh, there's there's five people here. The uh, can I want me to talk about the the, the just say what filled out this um issue? Not that we oh please yeah. Stories. But Giant Size Defenders had the 30-page news story, but had another one of those Bill Everett Submariner reprints from the what looked like the 50s, with sort of again the the young Namor being the the main character, kind of a bit you know uh, less Imperious Rex Namor and more like you know Golly Gosh Namor. Imperious Rex Namor. <laughs> Imperious Rex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, does it even say offbeat epic? T- There's a little note offbeat epic time. Here's a tale of Prince Namor, sometime defender from the fabulous 50s when he was a wise cracking youth with considerably less super strength and minus those nutty wings on his feet. Oh, he doesn't even that. Wow. So, yeah. And again, this doesn't fit into continuity at all because very shortly, you know, it's going to be established. Namor has been Namor for a long time and he fought in World War II and he had wings on his feet. So these these might not be considered canon at this point. Probably not. There's a Black Knight short, which is just kind of, you know, some fighting and stuff. Thing too thrilling. Although it probably looks at who's the, um, is it? Is it Joe Manili? It could, you know, it actually has more of a, I'm not sure I, I would, I, it probably is because I know he did a lot of them. I mean, it's really yeah. nice art. He's fantastic. And um, yeah, I mean, I was gonna say it almost has like a cuberty look to it, but I don't know if if if, if that would have been, you know, possible. Just think... some of the. Yeah, I don't think so. No, I'm sure it's just more All that right. kind of you know st- you know following that 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 style. And then there's a reprint of Strange Tales 119. So what's that like? The fifth Doctor Strange story. Called yeah, Doctor Strange Dares to Go Beyond the Purple Veil. But the funny thing is, they had an editorial note on the reprint that says, Get set for one of the most spine tingling chillers of all from the sizzling 60s. Author Ken, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Kesey loved it. Journalist Tom Wolfe immortalized it in his book, The Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. And truth to tell, a few zillion other Marvelites didn't think it was too bad either. So, you know. Zillion, you say? Yeah, and and <laughs> definitely trying to keep that magic of that '60s pop culture of Marvel, you know, swinging Stan and all of that, just kind of reminding us here in the early '70s, you know, even when Stan isn't even really the presence in the office, right? By this time, he's, you know, it's 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 Roy more or less running the show, but that legacy is really being kept of the idea that look at this great thing we did in the sixties. And it was, it is a great thing, but, but that's what I remember walking into in the seventies. It was just these constant reminders, you know, DC <laughs> wasn't telling you, Hey, remember the forties and how silly these comic books were. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, no, they did not. It's a constant reinforcement of the idea of the quote unquote Marvel universe and the mythology. And that's why even you read a story like this. And instead of creating a new villain, they bring back as just because it just constantly hits you with that feeling of no matter what time you walk in, it's so cool because there's so much that came before and you really mm-hmm. want to, you really want to be part of it. And you really want to know more about it. You know, not that Asmodeus is the most exciting villain, but right. it's still kind of cool that, Oh, there's a flashback to strange to Dr. Strange 177. Maybe I'll see that at a convention someday. Right. 
I took a second here and looked, and that Black Knight story was drawn by Fred Kaida, who was, I think he was mostly known for drawing Airboy in the 40s. And okay. I think he was also one of those guys who came out of the kind of let's all draw like Milton Kniff school. Yeah, definitely. It has that, that, that adventure strip style. That's why I thought, yeah, yeah. Moving on, we're going to start on Defenders number 17. This is the final run of issues written by Len Wein. This issue has a November cover date. On sale, uh, August 20th, 1974. And I always thought this cover was weird. I don't know about you. It's got Doctor Strange, Hulk, and Nighthawk all kind of standing around on this in this building that's sort of being under construction. And Luke Cage is kind of coming at them, and he looks like he's going to pound them. And the, the three defenders are just sort of like, what are we going to do? I don't know why. Yeah, the Hulk is just standing there, and I don't even remember that being part of the story. Well, I think this is a reference to something that happens at the beginning of the issue Okay, that doesn't really reflect the story. So the issue is written by Len Wein, art by Sabi Sema and Dan Green. The cover, by the way, is credited to Ron Wilson and Al Milgram, and I guess but Al Milgram with a question mark, but it, it certainly looks that way to me. Sure. Something I wanted to mention right at the beginning of the story, which I could have, should have, would have mentioned when we talked about Defender 16, uh, but this is now the second issue of regular Defenders that has the 1970s Marvel descriptive text box at the top of the page. And it says, the mysterious Doctor Strange, the vibrant Valkyrie, the savage Submariner, the high-flying Nighthawk, the high-flying Nighthawk, the Incredible Hulk, evil duos tremble at the names for these five formed the crux of the greatest non-team in history. Heroes called together only when the need arises to battle menaces that threaten the security or the very life of the planet Earth. Stanley presents the dynamic defenders. Yes, well, they're de they're defending everything. I think Nighthawk is high-flying. He's got that... No, 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 it's, it's, it's the the that just sounds funny to me oh. there. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> And Samariner, Samariner is still getting credit, and he's still on yes. the cover. And I don't think, I don't think he comes back. <laughs> he doesn't come back till around issue fifty, I believe. Yeah, uh, that was one thing I wanted to mention. The other was this is the first place where we see the term non-team. Interesting. Yeah. So the concept of the non-team you're saying is presented here as part of the premise. It's as essential to the defenders as a radioactive spider is to the yellow box on Spider-Man. Yeah. The yellow box. Yes. And for anyone who's not familiar with it and somehow is listening to this podcast, most Marvel series in the mid 1970s had these yellow boxes at the beginning. So if you pick up this issue, you've never read it, the series before you can read the yellow box and go, Oh, I get it. This is what this is all about. And there's one more thing that's interesting in this, which is that these five form the crux of the greatest non-team. So they're kind of putting in, they're sort of burying it, but they're putting it here that this is a team that is very flexible. And as I've said before, if you show up, you're on the team. If you walk out, you're on the team. If you walk out, apparently you're still on the team. <laughs> and we'll get a lot more about that in the future. But, you know, for now, if you're, Show up and you say, hey, I want to be on the team. You're on the team. So the issue is called Power Play, and we open 
at the Riding Academy on the Nassau-Suffolk border on Long Island, where Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, and Hulk are watching while Nighthawk tries to ride Aragorn, and uh, Aragorn is bucking um, and threatening to throw Nighthawk off. And uh, they're all having a good laugh about it because, you know, Nighthawk claimed to be a great horseman and he's not really handling uh, uh, Aragorn very well. Aragorn throws him. He activates his jetpack because, of course, the horse is not just on the ground. He's flying. Uh, He activates the jetpack and flies down easily and doesn't get hurt or anything. Yeah, it's a a fun scene. I'm not the biggest fan of um, Dan Green's inks. Mm. On Selbusema, they're a little light, but it's a really it's a really fun scene, and yeah. um, it's a and it's also a little bit of a character bit. I mean, Lynn yes. is clearly brought Nighthawk into the fold, having fun with creating this personality of the dynamic, you know, uh, playboy, rich millionaire playboy who likes to brag about what he can do, and then turns out he can't do it. <laughs> He's a little arrogant, you know, and uh, but but. Like he learns humility along the way. Like he, you know, he doesn't sulk when he can't ride the horse. <laughs> you know, he just kind of goes, okay, he's yours. He's obviously yours. And I do, I do wonder if also moving to Long Island for the um, riding academy slash headquarters is a way to get them out of Doctor Strange's house all the time. Yeah. Uh, because I wonder if, if you know, Marvel having a success, very successful Doctor Strange series at this time with Steve Englehart and Gene Colan, yeah. I believe, probably, you know, doesn't want to explain why, why Valkyrie isn't there all the time if that's where she's hanging out in the Defenders. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, I mean, we can come back to this later, but this these are, this three-issue storyline is one of the first times that the story is not driven by Doctor Strange and sorcery. There's a couple of others before that, but not many. Nighthawk becomes a real driving force of a character in in this story. So we move on to the next page where Valkyrie is saying, you know, um, it's time for me to go for sure. She goes, kind of leaves the room in her costume and comes back in 1970s gear, but she's still got her sword on her hip and says that she, she can't see leaving it behind. She would feel undressed without it, as she says. So Dr. Strange gestures mystically and makes it invisible. She can, she's happy with that. He says, there are a couple of added twists to that spell that will, you'll find helpful. And we don't quite know what they are. And Valkyrie gets in the limousine and drives away. I guess it's Nighthawks or Kyle Richmond's driver. We don't know where she's going, but she's going somewhere. And she says her goodbyes to all three of them, kisses Doctor Strange on the cheek and Hulk on the cheek, and then Nighthawk on the cheek, and he kisses her back on the lips and says, this is how you kiss. (laughs) Yes. But she also says a very familiar line to the Hulk. Uh Uh-huh. I will miss you most of all. It's what Dorothy said to the Scarecrow. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I also was going to say. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Anytime I leave somewhere, you pick a person and go, but I'm going to miss you most of all, Scarecrow. Yeah, I don't mind that, but I wish you'd quit kissing me. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I was going to mention here is how 
Hulk calls Nightwing bird nose and calls Doctor Strange magician or dumb magician and calls Submariner when he's around fish man. But Valkyrie is just girl. <laughs> it's like we're getting a little of the Smurfette syndrome here, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Not even sword girl. She could be sword right, girl. That would be great, I think. Anyway. It's just, you know, it was a boys club and there were boys writing and drawing these comics. So she drives off and Hulk is sad because, you know, she kissed him and she was nice to him and now she's gone and nobody did anything to stop her. And Doctor Strange should have stopped her and he gets he's getting more and more upset and he finally leaps away. And Nighthawk on the next page is blaming himself that the team is falling apart since he joined. Because, you know, he's he's not wrong. Since he joined, Submariner, Valkyrie, and Hulk have all left. I don't think it has anything to do with him. They walk into a, like a meeting room. And this is not just a writing academy. It is the Defender's headquarters now. He's even had a giant bunch of chairs made out of steel with their symbols on the chair. So there's a big, big, big chair with an H on it for Hulk. Which, um, I don't know, can Hulk read? I don't think so. Well, no, and it's not, that one's not made out of steel. That one's made out of adamantium. Oh, yeah, that's true. I always thought adamantium was a form of steel. Am I wrong? It's, a, I thought it was its own element, like vibranium. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. I think I'm just thinking of adamantium as an adjective, adamantium. Adamantium. As an adjective for steel. Adjective yes, form? thank you for. Well, yes, I think that's where, it, but, and usually I think, Aren't sometimes the claws are just were described as adamantium laced steel, oh, maybe something so, like yeah. that. But ironically, mm-hmm. at this very moment, even though the Hulk is left, and the Hulk continuity at this time in Marvel doesn't really make sense because <laughs> even though they have him leave to go into, he actually leaves this issue to go into Marvel Team Up Twenty Seven. Yes. Hulk One Eighty One is actually released this very same month, oh, November. Right. Um, but there's never any mention to the Hulk going into his own stories, which is really interesting because also Len is writing that book. But I do think it's a really big task because the Hulk was very serialized. He literally was going in the Hulk book from adventure to adventure to adventure. And they never really left a pocket to say, oh, the Defenders issues happened between these panels or whatever. That's a good point. I mean, it was very, it was, he was very much on the go, constantly being chased by, Thunderbolt Ross, who never shows up in New York. Whenever the Hulk's in New York, <laughs> Thunderbolt Ross is nowhere to be found. That's funny. They, right. should just be ch- they should just be waiting for him in Greenwich Village, you mm. know? Yeah, I don't know why he uh, hates New York, I guess. Screw it. Let Hulk destroy New York. I hate that place. <laughs> Nighthawk gets a little upset with everything and kicks the chair and hurts his foot. And Doctor Strange makes a sarcastic remark. And then uh, the be- the phone starts ringing. It's a call for Nighthawk. It is his uh, second-in-command, Pennysworth. And and we're getting a little more of a picture of Pennysworth's role here because, you know, Nighthawk asks, how are things in the sparkling world of high finance? And the, Pennysworth says, you better turn on the TV because some stuff is happening to buildings that you own. So we turn on the TV and see that there's some sort of threat against a building the wrecking crew has made this threat against the city of new york i guess or against richmond enterprises but they're basically saying unless they're 
the wrecking crew has paid $10 million by 8 p.m., they will destroy this building. And the newscaster, who's sort of a Walter Cronkite type, is saying, well, the deadline's passed. I guess nothing's happening. Oh, no, the building's coming down right now. <laughs> it's really a split second after 8 p.m. And then there's a voice out of nowhere saying, we're going to strike again unless you give us $25 million by tomorrow. The newscaster says, I think they're serious. Nighthawk on the phone says, how does this affect Richmond Enterprises? And Pennysworth says, to explains to him that all the buildings he's been destroying, they've been destroying, whoever they are, belong to you, buddy. We know it's the Wrecking Crew, but we don't know like who the Wrecking Crew are yet. Right. So, Doctor Strange and Nighthawk fly into New York City to see the building that's under threat now, which is under construction. And um, I love that Doctor Strange says it's a most impressive structure, my friend. It's like a box. <laughs> there's <laughs> there is nothing fancy looking about this building, but. Yeah. It's a box. Did Vince Coletta ink it? <laughs> why why that? Oh, he was famous for you know, Jack Kirby collector would show all these pages oh. of you know Kirby's pencils of a beautiful, you know, New York City skyline, and then Vince Coletta would erase all the buildings and just draw boxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just a bunch of girders and it is really a yeah. box like structure. It's nothing to it. So they're walking around in the building structure. And somebody comes up behind them and grabs them both by their capes and yanks them off their feet and slams them into a wall. And they, Nighthawk and Doctor Strange are getting up and going, who is that? And we see that it's Luke Cage, Power Man. And apparently he's been hired by Pennyworth. Pennyworth said, by the way, I've hired some people. And it's like, it's a person, but okay. <laughs> He, th he thought he was hiring Power Man and Iron Fist, but he didn't know he was getting ahead of yeah, himself. Really. <laughs> he hadn't actually met him or, you know, Misty Knight or whoever. Well, what's interesting, too, is there's a lot of suspense built up. You see a kind of lurking figure yeah. and then you see hands with the arm with the wristbands. And then it's the reveal is, you know, Power Man. But we've already seen him on the cover. And sometimes I wonder, you know, it's sometimes just that thing that happens. Uh, and since you said it was a weird cover, it also made me think if there was going to be a more mysterious cover or something. Mm -hmm. But then someone said, no, if Power Man's in the issue, put him on the cover. Don't make it a, yeah. don't make it a, I mean, this is still, these issues are still being sold on the newsstand and they have to be sold on the strength yeah. of who's on the cover, which is who's in the issue, but they still want to have that tension of uh, reveal in the story. Right. We've said that before with things like, you know, when Valkyrie made her debut in issue four and she's right on the cover, in, even though, Right. They had no indication that next issue was going to be Valkyrie. The three of them start fighting because Luke Cage is convin convinced that these two guys, who he's never heard of, are here to destroy the building. Doctor Strange shoots a mystic ray at him, at uh, Luke Cage. Luke Cage ducks. It hits a girder and starts to buckle the girder. And Doctor Strange uses the ruby rings of Ragador to repair the damage. And I, I had to look this up because I didn't know what it meant when I was a kid. Luke Cage says, you can call on Ruby Begonia if you want to. Ruby Begonia apparently was a supporting character in the Amos and Andy show. Wow. Yeah, I was like, I just thought this morning, like, hey, I can actually look this up now because I haven't read this issue in <laughs> 30 years, you know, probably. 
anyway, he, Luke Cage hits Doctor Strange, Nighthawk grabs Luke Cage by the shoulder and hits him, and they're, you know, they're going back and forth. There's sort of an acrobatic kind of fight scene between Luke Cage and Nighthawk, and it's all great, but it just sort of keeps going until Doctor Strange strikes. He's recovered enough, and he strikes and puts him in a, you want to say it? Uh, force a force bubble. bubble. <laughs> the force bubbles are back. <laughs> it's it's not our last force bubble of of the of no, the it's certainly either, it is I don't not. And Doctor Strange assures Luke Cage that they have nothing to do with the Wrecking Crew. They're here for the same reason Luke is basically, which is to protect this building and figure out what's going on with the so-called Wrecking Crew. And as they're talking about Luke Cage. Yeah, and Luke Cage is only on about issue twenty-two or something at this point. Yeah, um, so he hasn't he hasn't had a lot of interaction with the Marvel universe. I mean, most of his stories. I mean, with the exception of the Doctor Doom owing him money <laughs> sequence that I think happened in the teens. For the most part, he wasn't running around New York uh, meeting these other heroes. He was kind of he was the street character. Yes. He was at sort of street level mostly in his uh, particular neighborhood of Times Square and all that, and not necessarily, he didn't run into the Avengers or Iron Man or people like that. All yeah, the not at this point, you know, and actually they're starting to change Luke Cage because early on he was really fighting, you know, basically drug pushers and things like that in Harlem. And then with issue 20, I believe, they changed the title of the series from Luke Cage Hero for Hire to Luke Cage Power Man. Um, and he starts becoming more of a superhero and eventually, you know, He's in the Defenders. He takes um, the Thing's place on the Fantastic Four for a while. You know, he gets much more oh, yeah. involved in the in the Marvel Universe. But they still had to pay him. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Fantastic Four still had to yeah. pay him. As they're talking, though, some something is hitting the structure of the building, and, and the whole building collapses while they're still inside. And then Doctor Strange has moved quickly to throw another force bubble or I guess expand the force bubble so that now all three <laughs> of them are in it because they could have been killed by everything that was falling on them for sure. And then we see the villains. We're at the end of the issue already and it's the villains, the wrecking crew and the wrecker we recognize from Thor. But the other three guys on this team are new and awesome. I always loved these guys, even though I, they were kind of two-bit here characters, but they just were a great expansion of, you know, why not have more guys who are like the Wrecker? Oh, right. Yeah, you've got, I mean, uh, Thunderball. Yep. You've got Piledriver, yeah. and I'm you know, I'm blanking on the Bulldozer. last one. Bulldozer, that's yeah. what it is. So we end on a two-page spread, and this is one of those sideways two-page spreads, by the way. I was going to guess that. It seemed to be yeah. one of those. And by the way, you know, I was talking about this, like it was mostly a Sabi Sema thing, but I actually just got a copy of the Man-Thing Omnibus and I opened to a Mike Plug. I was just flipping through and I opened to a Mike Plug issue and sure enough, there's one of those two-page spreads in there. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, other people did it too. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't have anything to say about the letters page. Do you... Uh, no, not particularly. I mean, I just think this is a fascinating issue in the sense of it's so much the Marvel theme of heroes meet, don't recognize yep. each other, get into a big fight, and then kind of get together just in time for the villains to show right. up. 
Yeah, fair enough. Great structure. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's really good, example. really fun. A lot of action, a lot of movement. All right, so we'll go back and go ahead on to issue eighteen, December cover date on sale, September 17, seventy four. Written by Len Wein and art again by Sabisem and Dan Green, and Dave Hunt, who you disparaged earlier, is the letterer on this <laughs> that issue. That was the letter. <laughs> Enough yeah, said. <laughs> definitely. So we pick up right where we left off, of course. The two teams are facing off against each other. It's Nighthawk, Luke Cage, and Doctor Strange, who've just figured out that they're on the same side against the Wrecking Crew. The police are arriving. Oh, I should have mentioned the cover, actually. The cover is by Gil Kane and Dave Cockrum, and it is a lot of, you know, a lot of action. It's fun. Thunderball throws his wrecking ball, which is basically his his weapon, and Doctor Strange tries to blast it, but the wrecking ball moves around the blast and continues to its target, which was the oncoming police cars. So that's right. that's a hint of what's gonna happen or what's coming later. They start fighting for real and the wrecker uses his crowbar to break a water main which you know is gushing at the heroes and knocking them off their feet. Doctor Strange has put up a big force field. Apparently you can see force bubbles, but not force fields. Right. <laughs> so the the wrecking <laughs> crew is going to, you know, they try to leave, but they can't because there's this invisible barricade um, that's stopping them. And that's, a good, you know, it's important that there's a barricade like that, as we'll see soon. Cut to Cobbler's Roost, Vermont. <laughs> Where Valkyrie is getting out of her car and being left, and she is sort of looking around and thinking about Barbara and how she got here. And it's all in captions, though. It's not thought bubbles. And I thought, first of all, why is this place called Cobbler's Roost? That's such a weird name. Because a cobbler, why would a cobbler have a roost? It's just like an odd name for any kind of a town. Maybe it's real. I don't know. I didn't think to look it up. That's a good question. The, well, also, I, I wasn't sure if it meant a shoe cobbler or if it meant cobbler like yep. pie. Well, I think it's even less likely that a pie would have a roost than a cobbler who makes shoes. <laughs> but my daughter had the same question for me earlier when I was talking her talking up these issues to her a little bit. And she was like, because I thought this page was really funny. Yeah. She's sort of walking down the street and there's this mysterious character in the shadows who sees her and she does not see him. And he's thinking, he, I better tell the boss, and fast. And he looks like a thug or like a gangster or something. He's like he's straight out of Steve Ditko, yeah. early Spider-Man era. That guy's going to turn out to be the crime master. Kind of wow, thing. you're right. <laughs> okay, here's the other thing that was weird about this page and this whole sequence, and it's going to continue for a, a bit. When did she get any clue about where to go? She's in Copper's Roost, Vermont, but there was never any mention of her. Having, I got to go to Copper's Roost, Vermont. I found Barbara's driver's license, and it said she lives there. Interesting. Never happened. Maybe baby Magneto told her yeah, exactly. to go to Copper's <laughs> It's just, it's never explained. And it's just, she. I, I thought there was something that, uh, it was no, it wasn't in the um, Son of Satan. That would have been a good place for it, though. Yeah. Like in the Son of Satan. It, uh, giant size, it could have been when she was confronting your fears, there could have been a clue. Um, there could have been, 
but I don't think there was. Okay, well, I'm re-editing Giant Size Defenders <laughs> 2 to, to include yes. as, as Modius oh, going. I just realized. And remember, Cobbler's Roost. I just realized what it could have been. The name tag in her underwear probably said no. the name of the person and the address like she was going to camp. That's right. the only thing I can think. In her Valkyrie outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then we cut back to the fight that's going on. Luke Cage and Thunderball are going back and forth, but then Piledriver kind of comes up from behind and hits Luke Cage in the back. And then Nighthawk uses a steam shovel, uh, uses the steam shovel to knock Piledriver down. And he sort of says, good thing my dad taught me how to use one of these when I was a kid. Sure, okay. (laughs) And then... Bulldozer comes smashing at the vehicle and destroys it, and Nighthawk has to fly out of it. Doctor Strange <laughs> blasts Bulldozer and then gets knocked over by uh, the Wrecker. I mean, it's just a lot of back and forth. Of, you know, these guys are winning, then those guys are winning, and then they kind of come to a point where, like, they're they're back in the position they were in at the beginning of the issue, where they're just facing off against each other, and the the heroes are going like. Oh, the villains are saying, you guys should just give up. And the vil- heroes say, no, 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 we ha- we are going to keep fighting. You know, why do you think you have a chance to win? And Wrecker starts saying, this is not mere mortal power. It's the power of the gods. And then we cut to. Sounds like the time for an origin story. Yeah, it, right, right. And it is. We cut straight to a flashback where they've all escaped from prison. They were in prison together. They've all escaped from prison. And the wrecker is explaining how he's he's got his wrecking or his uh, crowbar back and he hired guys to keep track of where it was. So when he got out of prison, he could just get it again. And the other guys are going like, what's what's the big deal with that thing? It just looks like a piece of junk. And the wrecker says, no, no, no. You know, I fought Thor to a standstill with it. and I'm going to give you guys all kinds of great powers with it. So we're all going to put our and, and they're in the middle of a storm. It's actually reminded me a little bit of raising Arizona when the two guys escape from prison in the middle of the big storm. That, that's where the Cohen brothers got this from. Clearly, nobody ever <laughs> escaped prison in a storm before. So they all put their. No, it's, go ahead. It's a very dramatic scene, and it's helpful because it keeps it separate from you know the storm separates it clearly from the other on, ongoing action we're watching. I was noticing though. And I'm looking at the omnibus. I don't have a copy of this issue to look yep. at, but the the rounded borders on the the flashback. Sure. Because unlike other flashbacks, it doesn't have captions. It's like because it's diving into where they're actually speaking dialogue. So clearly, the they had to do something to show we were in the past, as opposed to if it, they still had you know sharp square borders. Right. So. That- I just kind of, kind of find that interesting because it's obviously very hand done because it's a very uneven process. I'm sure nowadays there's computer programs that could shape the panels. Right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I can do that in a heartbeat in InDesign. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a well delineated flashback. There's, you know, like the last time we talked about a flashback or one of the last times I found it hard to remember that it was a flashback because it wasn't that well drawn or whatever. This is much clearer. Right. And this is... The first time we've met the Wrecking Crew, or I mean, the end of last issue. This is, at, but the Wrecker is originally from a couple Thor yes. stories. 
Yeah. Which they kind of, they, they mentioned one of them, but I don't even think that's the first one. I think that's the second. I one. think so. But it was only like a two-parter. It wasn't like he was a major villain. Right. But uh, as usual, you can take just about anything Jack Kirby did and build on it. Um, it, it was a very clever idea. I mean, and, I, yes. again, it's one of the things you love about the Marvel writers at this point in time is that it's building on existing concepts and mythology and not just saying, I'm just going to create a wrecking crew. Expanding this right. was a great idea. Yeah. And I should say Stan and Jack, by the way. I didn't, I'm not one of those guys who says, you know, Jack did everything and Stan did nothing. I give them both a lot of credit. So anyway, the four guys all put their hands on the crowbar and lightning strikes the crowbar. It releases the power. They all have incredible massive powers now. And they, it's the wrecker and the wrecking crew. And Dr. Strange says, that's great. It's magic. I can control that. And so he starts basically absorbing <laughs> the power out of them. I thought you guys were science. I don't know what he thought, but, you know, now that he um, knows it's magical, which actually explains why the uh, um, Thunderball's wrecking ball, you know, took a curve around the magical bolt or whatever. It's magical right. in nature. And it has an, a, a little bit more of an ability than you would think. But everything's going fine until suddenly Dr. Strange is having some kind of massive feedback into his head because we cut to the uh, invisible barrier that he threw up and the Hulk is there trying to get in by bashing away at it. And that apparently is feeding straight back into Dr. Strange. <laughs> so the Hulk doesn't realize what he's doing, of course, but. And and I did take a look at Marvel Team Up 27 okay. just to sort of see. And literally, Hulk leaves Defenders, the previous issue, gets accosted by the chameleon who takes on the persona of Rick Jones to enlist the Hulk to break his good friend out of prison. Chameleon has a friend in prison that, that he wants broken out. And so, of course, that gets Spider-Man involved because Spider-Man's wondering why is the Hulk breaking this guy out of prison. So that becomes a little fight, then team up with with a Hulk and Spider-Man. It's Marvel team up, of course. And in the end, Chameleon's friend dies because of the escape, because he gets shot by the cops in the process of the escape. But the lesson that Hulk has learned is that friends are really important. And so he decides to go back in that story. He's hearing about the Defenders fighting at the building site and he says i'm gonna go back and help my friends because dr strange is my friend yes there you go so it's also written by written by len ween so it really yeah. you know really tying it in very very tightly okay that is cool while at the same time hulk is fighting wolverine and cat <laughs> <laughs> that's the only problem with it <laughs> that's funny but what are you gonna do yeah <laughs> yes so the hulk is trying to bash his way into the barrier nighthawk and luke cage jet off or run off and jet off to stop the hulk just as the hulk smashes through the barrier and dr strange collapses and you know the uh wrecking crew takes it as their opportunity hulk immediately knocks over the guy he's calling now tin can head bulldozer you know he, he's just like ha ha i knocked you over and then wrecker the wrecker comes up behind him and chokes him across the neck with his crowbar but Hulk throws him off and right at pile driver I can't believe I know these guys names by now <laughs> and then at the end of the issue they're, they're still all fighting and 
Thunderball. Thunderball. Thank you. I can never remember that one because I associate that term only with James Bond, obviously. Right. <laughs> Says, look, I found what we were here for. It, it was unearthed in the battle. And it's this big sort of looks like an urn or something. But he opens it up and he says, oh, my God, the case is empty. So this is the MacGuffin we've all been waiting for. Some sort of thing that it's missing that they had to find. Probably that's why they were built, destroying only Richmond buildings, because the thing was uh, something to do with Richmond. Yeah, it's, it's the story tracks. It's interesting. So it sort of also suggests that they really didn't want the millions. The They set that bar really high to give them the opportunity to to blow up the building. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, it's a lot of fun. And we're on to part three, the final chapter of this. Defenders 19, January 1975 cover date, but it was on sale October 17, 1974. This issue is written, well, it's called Doomball, first of all. It is co-written. Len Wein is only the plotter on this issue. The script is by Chris Claremont, and it's a pretty early assignment for him. You know, he, he hasn't developed most of his sort of stylistic tics that will come up later. And the art is by Savvy Seminole and Klaus Jansen. And interesting footnote, colored by Bill Mantlow. So, yes, these, these you know, last issue we had Dave Hunt lettering and now we've got Bill Mantlow coloring. We have a great Gil Kane cover. Yes, real nice Gil Kane and Joe Sinnott, I think, is the anchor on this one. And it's terrific. The three defenders or the four defenders are all collapsed and the wrecking crew is sort of behind them going like we did it um but it, you know man it's Bill Kane and Nighthawk Nighthawk made the cover he's got some Mariners place oh yeah thank goodness good for him finally yeah. a little credit for Nighthawk nothing for Valkyrie still but she's not even around at this point so she's not in this storyline really so there it makes sense I would yeah think. fair enough Anyway, so we pick up right where we left off again. Everyone's sort of scratch. Well, Hulk scratching his head. Everyone else is just standing around looking very tense because Thunderball is not just saying it's gone. It's empty. He's saying the gamma bomb. It's gone. What is a gamma bomb? I wonder. A gamma bomb. Can we talk about the gamma bomb? Yeah, I think that this is a good time. I, I studied gamma bombs in college wow. and, and, and put my degree to use. I, I, I have a love for the Hulk. I've said this before, my favorite Marvel character, and that's probably what brought me to reading The Defenders. Mm -hmm. And I was also very fortunate when I was in the movie business uh, many decades ago now, I was developing for Universal Studios an Incredible Hulk movie. Mm. And unlike every other incarnation of the Incredible Hulk that's been dramatized in a movie or TV show, not animated, animated, they've got some things right. They've never used the gamma bomb. Oh, huh. um, but our script was intent on using the gamma bomb, Rick Jones, that basic heroic origin story of the Hulk is created because Banner risks his life to save someone mm. else. The man who makes the bomb becomes the bomb. And it was, you know, I thought it was really, you know, very powerful. I always liked that better than the, I just want to tap into the potential of, you know, what happens when you get angry and your adrenaline runs and combine that with gamma rays. Oh, you become the right. Hulk. You know, that you got a lot on TV and even, I mean, you can't even explain the origin of the Hulk from the first Ang Lee Hulk movie. Don't even, don't even try. <laughs> I think it was even... 
I think it was even the New York Times that said, you know, if you want to say what's great about Marvel Comics, it's the simplicity. So why did they have to give in the movie The Hulk five reasons why he becomes the Hulk, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway, so so here, this is really cool because the Gamma Bomb is a great piece of technology from the early Marvel Silver Age in the same way Cosmic Rays and, uh, you know, Reed Richards' research Lee and Kirby went back to that very quickly, right? With the red ghost, Uh they had a character who tried to do the same thing Reed Richards did and, you know, came back with a bunch of, you know, super powered monkeys, but the gamma bomb was just always there. Uh, And I guess they went through other gamma radiation stories with the leader using gamma radiation and the abomination is a product of gamma radiation, but the idea of the bomb itself uh, and maybe because we were in the Vietnam War, it wasn't bombs and things weren't things people wanted to talk about. Who knows? But this is a great origin story now that we get of why the gamma bomb is a MacGuffin here. And it's because Thunderball is actually a scientist who, Dr. Franklin, does he have a first name? I don't know if he yeah, said his first name anywhere. He does, but I don't, but, I don't see But it. Dr. Franklin here was a was studying Bruce Banner's technology and decided to create a, a micro gamma bomb. I mean, the one in the desert that created the Hulk was gigantic. Right. But here's the one thing about gamma bombs that everybody forgets. They don't work. <laughs> it didn't blow. It, the gamma bomb didn't blow anything up. It just irradiated a guy. Uh-huh. And I think, I think Peter David tried to tackle that in a late in the Todd McFarlane arc with the leader, you know, what the gamma bomb was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. We've never really seen a gamma bomb work explode and, and go yeah. off, but this is what we're dealing with here as the potential technology. And 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 uh, and I was just fascinated that I think if you did this type of story today, it would probably become a you know it would be like a six part arc just about you know bringing back something like the gamma bomb. It would be like the blackest night of <laughs> Marvel, yeah. you know, or something to do like oh my god. You know, it would be a gamma, you know, there's a gamma bomb out there and everybody's getting irradiated and everybody's turning into a Hulk. And, you know, that's what you would do. And here is just a simple MacGuffin that someone created a gamma bomb. It didn't even have to be a gamma bomb, no. but they went with gamma bomb. It really pays off. I'll let you get back to telling this. Right. Thank you for that. Interview. Okay. <laughs> so um, Dr. Strange basically says to Thunderball, what are you talking about? What's a gamma bomb? And we have a flashback where he explains, like you said, he's a nuclear physicist working for Richmond Enterprises. People called him the Black Bruce Banner. And he basically says, you know, I took Bruce Banner's gamma bomb research and made it better. And he shows the boss who is Pennysworth. Apparently there's no one between him and Pennysworth at this uh, big corporation. Uh, (laughs) Took it to... Penny's worth and Penny's worth stabbed him in the back because he, the next morning he comes back to work and all the notes are gone. The bomb is gone. Everything he did is gone. And that the bomb has been patented in the company's name, which is not unusual. There's a lot of, a lot of instances. I know I am sure of people getting upset that the work they th- did while employed at the company were basically the company's property. But he says, no, I did all that work on my own time which makes me wonder like, well, then why did you go tell your boss about it? And you seem to have also done that work on the company equipment as well. It's, uh, you know, anyway, he leaves, but comes back um, a few days, you know, sometime later. 
and basically breaks into the um, building at night, steals the bomb, runs away. Some security guards are chasing him through a big room full of like vats of molten liquid, uh, molten steel. And somebody, one of the guards shoots at him. He drops the bomb into the steel. So they figured, well, the steel is being used to make these buildings for Richmond. So that's why we're going to start destroying the buildings to try to find the bomb. And all they found, in terms of all they found was the case. Right. I was saying in terms of, um, classic comic book scenes, Uh you know, being on one of these, uh, you know, high level walkways above all these vats. It's like, I thought, I thought the bomb might come back as either the Joker or plastic. Yeah. I thought exactly the same thing. It's really that, (laughs) that same setup of, you know, racing along this, this walkway and, and, you know, it's, it's all danger. Um, so Dr. Strange is kind of going, hmm, I bet we could find this. And while he's contemplating that for a second, the wrecking crew just says, screw you guys. They they attack, knock everybody, including the Hulk, unconscious and make their getaway. And then on the next page, the Hulk is like um, waiting for the rest of the defenders to regain consciousness. And he's glad that they're all okay, but the cops are arriving to arrest them all and Doctor Strange, you know, basically freezes them and so the Defenders can get away. They're following the trail of the Wrecking Crew and the mystic energy from the Wrecker's Crowbar. And they sort of encounter a homeless guy who's, like, asking for a quarter for a cup of coffee. And the Hulk picks the guy up and says, don't threaten my friend the Magician. And Hulk, I mean, uh, Doctor Strange says, no, 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 it's not his fault. He's not, doesn't mean us any harm. And we live in the wealthiest nation on earth and men still go hungry. Well, here's a big fancy dinner for you from the Plaza Hotel. So a little social commentary there. Quick aside, poverty is bad, kids. A common uh, thing you would see in, in Marvel Comics yeah. in the early 70s. Yeah, for sure. And DC Comics. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're running along and somebody calls, hey, Power Man, Power Man. And it's a kid. There are, and he says, there's some goons wrecking our club. So Dr. Strange asks him to explain. And the, the kid says, they busted into our club looking for something. And he, you know, they're, they've got some kind of radiation detector or something, I guess, that has pointed them in this direction. The defenders go to the Harlem Boys Club where the, this kid says all the trouble is happening. And this is. Well, there's a lot of, there's a little bit of foreshadowing in this, in this, in this sequence. Uh, yes. I'm trying. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. At the end of the page there, of course there is because yeah, it's kind of there through the whole thing, but then you're kind of notice that the kids actually got the gamma bomb. He's been got it in his baseball. For mitt. some reason he's wearing a baseball mitt and he's got the gamma, the gamma bomb in the mitt. Nobody really notices that including the wrecking crew, I assume. So this is the next page. One of many great sequences in this issue, I think where, Hulk says, I'll take care of this. I'm going to go smash all these puny humans. And he walks into the club. Then there's like a silent panel of just the building. And then the third panel is the Hulk flying back out of the club doorway. Like he's just been, you know, smashed real hard with that wrecking uh, crowbar. But the Hulk, you know, bounces right back up. And this time he's accompanied by the other defenders. And now they're fighting in the boys club. Against the wrecking crew, Dr. Strange says, we have to get out of here because 
we're going to hurt these children here if we, you know, if we stay inside. And Thunderball says, not only that, <laughs> but our fighting could trigger the bomb if it's if it's here. We got to get outside. So there's a fantastic two pages here of the Hulk and Thunderball fighting, where yeah, Thunderball whirls around his uh, wrecking ball, throws it at the Hulk. Hulk ducks, but the wrecking ball hits a building, smashes that building to and bounces back and hits Hulk in the back, and Hulk just goes face down into the pavement. It's amazing. And then it continues on the next page because the Thunderball now has his, his weapon again. He's coming, running up to the Hulk, swinging it around like crazy. And Hulk just catches it on his fingers. Like his fingers are strong enough. They just catch it and dig right into the thing. And he crumbles the whole wrecking ball. And, the, you know, it's like panel of ball starting to break. And the um, villain... You know, you see that hit the guy's face, and he looks like, "Uh oh!" And then the ball yeah, is great reaction. Shot. Yeah, ball is breaking even more, and he looks really shocked. And the ball is completely demolished into dust. And he go, and he just says, "Oh my lord!" And then the Hulk hits him, and that's kind of the the end for him. I'm really curious because each of these pages, these last four pages, are so well designed, and I always like comic book pages that are sort of self-contained i mean in the sense uh -huh. of there's a a little story that plays out on each page as part of the larger story right. and i always wonder in this era of marvel that balance between writer and artist especially when there are plots and i do recall seeing some plots that are like that where it's not where it's literally like a page you know breakdown so it might might say you know for this page of the story this is a, the, the final showdown between thunderball and hulk and we see a series of panels where the Hulk grabs, yeah. you know, the um, the Thunderball, and we see Thunderball's reaction shot as you know, shot by shot, panel by panel, the ball slowly crumbles. I mean, there might have been some description of that mm -hmm. in the plot. Obviously, it's not just South Buscema, but it's one of the things again that when I think about comic books as opposed to other forms of of comic you know story sequential storytelling it really is what makes a comic book a comic book and when people you know we still you know have the debates all the time about digital and the success of digital and and that's kind of the funny thing is that i was saying to someone last week if you're if you're going to design a comic for for digital you would never design it to be like a 24 page series of panels like this you would use what you could do digitally you know, with it, you know, to read it on an iPad. And then you're more in the world of things that can, you know, what Scott McCloud was doing on digital comics for a while, where it doesn't have to flow in the same way a comic book flows. But even, at least for Marvel and DC, the main publishers, Image, whoever, are still digital simply means making a comic for a comic book and then figuring out how to translate it digitally right. as opposed to digital comics. Um, well, there are some things where, you know, some of the DC digital stuff has those like half page formats, but you know, it, it shows when it doesn't look as much like a comic book when it gets printed no. as this does, because it's like six panels or eight panels, whatever the, whatever the structure is, you know, it's Jim Starlin drawing a face, you know, that, that, you know, Thanos's face pro in profile that takes up half the page. Right. Um, all those kinds of things are things that work because of the dimensions of a comic book. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real good point.
This is I love Salvi. Yeah, well, he's doing a fantastic job on this issue in particular. It's and I think you're right. You know, Len Wein was enough of he actually did a little bit of art. I don't think he ever really got published as an artist, but he was an aspiring artist and he had enough of a visual sense that he might have really informed how these pages lay out. Yes, yeah, that I mean that's a thing about Len uh in general. What I remember from his Spider-Man stories is and why I think he worked very well with Alan Moore, you know, on on Swamp Thing and things like that is because he knew to put in things that were visual to tell the story that didn't need captions or word balloons. He used visual cues to show that it was Dr. Octopus. Uh-huh. You know, there was a, there's a mysterious figure once in a Spider-Man book in one of these one page sure. segments. And, and you'd see, you know, and you saw two hands on a cup and a third hand, a third <laughs> arm pouring the bottle of wine. I remember that. And when you first read it, you didn't realize it until somebody, you know, put it in the, um, you know, letters column, like, Oh my God, it was Dr. Octopus because who else has that many arms? Yeah. Or he did a green goblin story where, you know, he, you know, obviously people are probably expecting, oh, he's going to bring back Norman Osborn or it's going to be Harry or whatever. But he did a thing that involved masks as design elements of the real villain's office. So when you went back oh, and read it, right. you were like, oh, it's there in front of us. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. This, this guy's obsessed with masks and and sort of this horror culture. So, of course, he's the guy who becomes the Green Goblin instead of Harry in the story. Mm-hmm. So so there were things like that that obviously had to be written into a script slash plot for the artist to know to put them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, yeah, Len was a very visual and cinematic thinker in that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let's get back to the fight scene real quick. Nighthawk, meanwhile, is uh, facing off with Bulldozer, who's coming, running at him. And he his Bulldozer's whole thing is that he puts his head down and runs at you like a bull. Literally like a bull. And um Dozer. <laughs> no dozer, just bull. Okay. Nighthawk grabs his backpack off his back and it like throws it onto Bulldozer, which carries him up and way up into the air, but it doesn't run very long, and then he just comes crashing down to Earth and he's unconscious. Then Luke Cage is fighting Pile Driver, and there's not much to it. They he just sort of judo you know, throws him into a wall. And then the big showdown is Doctor Strange versus the Wrecker, but Doctor Strange basically makes the Wreckers, uh, the Wrecking Bars, or the Crowbar's energy feedback into the Wrecker himself, and he's unconscious, and then Doctor Strange just poofs the Crowbar into some other dimension so that it's not accessible anymore. And all the kids come running and going, Mr. Wizard, Power Man, thanks a lot. And I love they call him Mr. Wizard. <laughs> and Dr. Shane says, hey, we were looking for a bomb that could go off any minute. And, you know, do you know where it is? We've got to find it. And the kids say, uh, I, maybe that was the thing that Joey had when he went looking for help. And Dr. Shane says, but all it was was a soft boot. And he realizes it's the softball. Oh. And I love this moment, too, where they find the kid. He's sort of tossing the bomb, which is ball-shaped, and it's like a softball size, casually tossing it up and catching it. And Dr. Strange is saying, don't drop it, don't drop it. Kid says, I'm not going to drop it. Dr. Strange takes the bomb away and manages to touch just the exact right thing that sets it off, and now it's ticking. (laughs) 
we're, we're we're just watching the 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 wire, and it's, it's strangely we saw this week the sequence where there's a uh, an electronic device, an electronic listening device, and a tennis ball, uh-huh. and for some reason this reminded me of that scene because it's the same thing. It's just you know the there's someone on the street playing with the tennis ball that screws up the whole surveillance operation. Right, right. But <laughs> They're trying to figure out what to do now because this thing is going to explode, and then they realize, oh wait, we've got a gamma bomb expert right here. So if only, if only. <laughs> Dr. Strange basically puts Hulk into a trance and changes him back to Bruce Banner and says, you have to disarm the thing quick. And Bruce Banner looks at it and goes like, I, I, it's tiny. How am I supposed to do anything? This thing is incredibly tiny and I don't have any tools. And Dr. Strange poofs him a set of tools. And Bruce Banner is very tensely trying to disarm the thing. And it's all just, Six panels of like tight close-ups on Bruce Banner's face. He's sweating. He's trying not to change back into the Hulk. I kind of feel like this page might have been colored by Klaus Janssen. This is like really inventive coloring. Uh, Bruce Banner's face is turning like grayish, bluish. You know, there's pinks, there's greens and yellows, and it's yeah, it's pretty amazing actually. It shows the struggle. He's trying to yeah. not Hulk out because there's so much tension in this right. Scene. And finally, it's done. I fixed it. And Dr. Strange thanks him. But even as he's thanking him and saying, now what do we do with the bomb? He changes back to the Hulk immediately. And I like that Dr. Strange goes, you know, Nighthawk says, uh, Doc. And Dr. Strange says, yes, Nighthawk. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like, why Hulk doesn't go? What do you mean, oh, no? aren't you glad to see your friend the Hulk says what happened and Dr. Shane says it's too much to explain but trust me it was for everyone's benefit that you had to go to sleep for a few minutes then we're at the end of the story where Luke Cage is saying well I'm glad this is all over but my job was to keep those buildings from getting knocked down and I failed and I'm not going to get paid and Dr. Strange, I don't know why Dr. Strange and not Kyle, not uh, Nighthawk says this, but Dr. Strange says, we could explain. And Luke Cage says, explain to Pennysworth, you got to be kidding. So that's a little foreshadowing of um, Pennysworth and what is going to happen to him in the, with him in the future. So that is the end of the issue and the end of Len Wein's run on the Defenders, which was a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah, it was. And I, and I also liked the way he handled the, um, you know, getting rid of the Wreckers crowbar, you know, not just destroying it, but, you know, saying I can't destroy it, but I can make it vanish. So, again, knowing that someone else is going to have a great Wrecker story and they shouldn't have to go to extraordinary lengths to bring back the huh. Wrecker. All the Wrecker has to do is somehow be granted his magical crowbar again somehow. Right. That's a good point. It's like we're borrowing these characters. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, the one thing I wanted to mention still is that on the defend on the letters page here, there's a note about um, what's coming up, and it's a real interesting note because it basically says this story is going to continue into Marvel Two and One, issue number seven, which fe- features Valkyrie and the Thing, and that leads into de- Defenders number twenty. And not only that. But this is the final issue written by Len Wein, who's going to become an, a staff editor at Marvel. But don't worry, kids. We've got this new writer, Steve Gerber, we think you're really going to like. 
And Steve's been doing, well, we'll talk about it more next time probably. But yes, I mean, Steve has been doing other stuff for Marvel at this point. Yeah, for sure. It's not like his his first book out of the gate, but it is uh, a big one. So next time we're going to talk about Marvel 2-in-1. Six actually is a thing, Doctor Strange team up. And then seven is the um, thing, the Valkyrie team up that we just mentioned. And then I think we'll talk about Defenders number 20, which continues the story and really tells us a lot about Valkyrie. So finally, we're going to learn a lot about Valkyrie. We've been waiting. There's been a lot of hints, cobblers, roost, Vermont. It's going to be, you know, an important part of it. Anything else to add? Um, On the letter column, you know, another famous uh, letter writer was T.E. Pouncey. Oh, I recognize that name too. Yeah. AKA, I think at DC he was known as Pesky Pouncy. Oh, really? Yeah. That's funny because Marty Pasco was Pesky Pasco. Oh, pe- oh, you know what? Maybe I might be confusing those two things, but I'm pretty sure that pe- Pouncy was Pesky before Pasco was Pesky. That could that could be, but I <laughs> definitely know that Marty Pasco was. And the letter columns, all they are talking about who should be defenders and who shouldn't be. I mean, it's kind of exciting that the, the, it seems the energy of the series really is this defining non-team elements the idea that you know it could be anybody could be a defender it can change it can you know whatever characters from the past people want to bring back they might be able to bring back yes uh yeah absolutely and that's what's something i wanted to mention which is that lens run on defenders you know it was not that many issues all told um like nine i think but he kind of introduced or further opened the door to the Defenders is whoever we need in this issue, in this story. Right, because Luke Cage has the feel of being a Defender in the sense that he's there for part of it and goes away. And I'm sure Kyle is going to write him out a check, right? I mean, we're not going to... I think, I think if, if he can you know, pick up the phone and call Penny's Worth and say, still, you're going to pay this guy, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think we'll have to learn more about that relationship between Kyle and Pennysworth in the future. It seems it's a great mystery, the way Pennysworth, we only see his his arm. Yeah, I have things I, can, I could say about that, but we'll hold on that for now. Cool. Okay. Well, then, we've, we've covered another bunch of issues. And until next time, Defenders, Defenders Dissemble. All right. Okay. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Please subscribe. Leave us a review. And tell your friends, we're having fun doing this, and we're going to keep doing it, whether you like it or not. I hope you like it. Superhero, <laughs> right. uh, and real, swing and shield, fling and superhero.